Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, auditing partnerships. As the IRS has sought to implement its new partnership audit regime, we've seen proposed regulations issued, withdrawn, then issued again. Here to help us sort through where we are and what this means for partnerships and practitioners is Tax Notes Today legal reporter Eric Yauk. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Eric, how about we start with a bit of background on this issue? Sure, Dave. I think it's important to note that in 2018, partnerships underwent a lot of changes. Congress enacted the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017, and a lot of changes to partnerships were put in place. For example, there was a new 20% write-off for pass-through owners. Now, that's an individual write-off, but it's important to note that a lot of that information comes from pass-throughs, for example, a partnership. Now, a partnership has to report things like unadjusted basis in property immediately after acquisition, and they also have to report wages out to partners. So K-1s under 199K are going to look different. Another change was the business interest limitation under Section 163J. That change now applies, and that limit applies at the partnership level. In the past, it used to apply at the partner level, but now the partnership, which doesn't itself pay tax, has to figure out the limitation, and then it flows up to its partners. Another change in partnerships is bonus depreciation. The TCJA allowed 100% expensing for some qualified property. Now, certain adjustments, like Section 743B adjustments, can count, but there are different timing rules, or if you have a different class of property, that could factor into your 743B adjustment. It's another partnership-type change. That's not to mention anything with the foreign rules, like 965, guilty, FIDI. There are a lot of changes that partnerships are going to have to deal with. Now, to add to that complexity, in 2018, there is a new audit regime that allows the IRS to audit partnerships at the entity level. Okay, so what is this partnership audit regime and where did it come from? The partnership audit regime was enacted in 2015 as part of the Bipartisan Budget Act. And what it lets the IRS do is audit partnerships at the entity level, which historically has been pretty challenging for the IRS. Now, I remember covering this back in 2015 when I was writing for state tax notes, and this was just very theoretical. 2018, which is very far away. Well, fast forward in just a few short weeks here, 2018 partnership returns are going to be due. And that, when they file their return, is when this new audit regime takes effect. So now it's becoming a reality for practitioners across the country. And if you look back at the guidance implementing this, it's a very convoluted past. In January 2018, the IRS and Treasury put out regs finalizing how you elect out of the regime, the type of partners you can have, how many partners you can have, how to count those partners. That counts towards how you elect out. Then in August 2018, they also put out final rules on choosing the partnership representative, which we'll get to later because that's actually very important. And it's one of the most talked about things in this new audit regime. Okay, so we have those sets of final rules. Now circle back. We had proposed regulations on the general implementation of this new regime in June, November, and December in 2017. All were withdrawn. New proposed regulations were released in August 2018, and that also interpreted changes made legislatively for March 2018. We had new final regs that came out December 21st. Now, they adopted a lot of the changes, not all of them, but a lot of the changes from those proposed regulations from August 2018. We're still waiting on another set for computational rules and appeals process that will come out at some point in 20. So as you can see, it's been a long, complex past of regulations. And not even done yet. Not even done yet. So what is covered in the rules that we do have? So what this latest batch that came out in December of 2018 showed us is that certain things are in, certain things are out. 
For example, let's say that you have a partnership adjustment at the entity level as a result of an audit, and it changes the adjusted gross income of a partner at the partner level. Now, if there's an increase to adjusted gross income, that could change that partner's charitable contribution limit. But because that's so partner-specific, that's not going to be in the partnership audit regime. That's out. But think of a different scenario, though. Think of like a disguised sale, which is included. The IRS and Treasury didn't intend to keep that out. A disguised sale shows up on a partnership return, but it also has partnership aspects, okay? Because if you're going to treat the contribution of property and then maybe subsequent distribution of something as a sale, the property gets a carryover basis still from that partner, but the portion treated as a disguised sale gets an increase in basis as if you purchased it. So it has both aspects. It's both partner level and partnership level. That's included in the audit regime, and I think that makes sense. Now, you said that the final regs have adopted most of the changes from the proposed regs. Are there any surprises? Yeah, I think there there have been a few surprises after talking to practitioners. One of them is, let's say that the IRS mails to a partnership a notice of administrative proceeding. They're going to start an audit. A partner does not know that that has been mailed, and then they file an amended return. Now, what happens is you treat that amended return that the partner filed as an administrative adjustment. But here's the thing. Under these final rules, you can't have an administrative adjustment once a notice of administrative proceeding has been filed. Now, one of the things that people have said is if you're in a large partnership, there aren't notice requirements here that the partnership has to let you know that a proceeding has started. So if you're a partner and you file an amended return, it's treated as an adjustment. It's disallowed. But you never knew about the proceeding in the first place. You had no idea. That's one issue that jumps out. And some practitioners have said that actually that treatment of that amended return could be subject to challenge. One more issue that's given practitioners heartburn is the treatment of imputed underpayments. So what happens is you net all of your adjustments and then you find your imputed underpayment amount and then you multiply it by the highest rate of federal income tax for the reviewed year. Now, some people have said that's not really fair if you think about it because some partners could be tax exempt. So now they're paying the highest income tax rate for that year when they shouldn't be paying tax at all. The IRS said, we're going to keep this rule, but nothing's stopping the partnership from filing a modification showing that they're tax exempt and they wouldn't have to pay anyway. Perhaps the biggest surprise, and everyone's talking about this, is the treatment of mischaracterized debt under the audit regime. That's a pretty big issue. So you're talking about recourse versus non-recourse debt? Is that what this is about? Sure. I think a little bit of background here is pretty helpful. If you have recourse debt, that means that a partner bears the economic risk of loss for that debt. Now, first thing that you're going to want to do is look to the type of partnership. Is it a general partnership? Is it a limited partnership? If it's a general partnership with a general partner, that debt's going to be recourse typically to that general partner. If it's a limited partnership where you have a general partner and there's debt, that general partner, they could have recourse debt because they're on the hook for it. Those limited partners, however, they would not be on the hook. It'd be non-recourse for them. Now, here's how you allocate it typically. If you have recourse debt, they say typically you look to losses, and that's how you allocate recourse debt. For non-recourse debt, where no one bears the economic risk of loss, so you have an LLC, right? They're protected liability-wise. should be generally non-recourse debt. What can happen is you go through this three-tiered allocation system. First, you look to partnership minimum gain. If the liability becomes due, but the property has been depreciated down, so your liability amount is more than your adjusted basis amount, partnership minimum gain. Next, you get on to section 704C. And then after you get through that tranche, you look to profits. So generally for recourse, you look to losses. Non-recourse, you have the three levels and the last one is profits. It's very complex. Now, partners have said in the past on the K-1 where it lists your actual liability amount, recourse versus non-recourse, nobody really paid attention to it. And most people just didn't care. But now because of the audit rules, you do care. For example, let's say that you have debt and you you categorize it as recourse. The IRS comes in and audits you and says, you know what? Actually, that's non-recourse. We're going to switch the amounts. That is 
going to be treated as an underpayment. And now you owe tax on that amount that was changed from recourse to non-recourse, even if the liability allocated to that partner didn't change. They're still allocated the same liability. It's just non-recourse now instead of recourse. But under the rules, when your liability is reduced, it's treated as a distribution, right? So that means that you're going to get hit with tax on that. So now you had this tax bill and you had the same amount of liability allocated to you. And in the past, it hadn't been that big of a deal on a K-1. People are pretty worried about it. Let's look at example seven of the regulations. That seems to be the one that had everyone pretty freaked out. Let's say a partnership reports a $100 non-recourse liability as a recourse liability. The adjustment would increase the partnership's non-recourse liabilities by $100. It would decrease the partnership's recourse liabilities by $100. The example concludes that the partnership would owe tax on the $100 decrease to recourse liabilities, even if that decrease wouldn't have affected the amount of tax owed by a partner. Now, someone pointed out, though, this appears at odds with example five of proposed reg section 6225-4E, which states that the recharacterization of liability will be taxed only to the extent that the recharacterization reduces the amount of liability allocated to that partner. Now, that proposed rule, Dave, was not finalized on December 21st. It's still outstanding. So what does a taxpayer do if they get hit with this mixed characterization problem? Under the centralized partnership audit regime, it's very complex. There have been several rounds of rules, but one thing that taxpayers will say is that they have a lot of options. Let's say you mischaracterize debt, you have this tax liability, but the allocation amounts stay the same. So you really shouldn't owe extra tax. What can you do? One thing you can do, seek a modification at the partnership level. You can ask the IRS if you can modify the amount and say, look, we mischaracterized it, but no one would actually owe tax. They're allocated the same amount of liability. Their basis stays the same. Not a big deal. One option. However, the IRS does not have to grant that modification. Now, you have other options. The partners can file amended returns, or they can use what's known as the pull-in procedure. They can fix that amount of liability that they would owe, but under a pull-in, you wouldn't file a complete amended return. Because if you file an amended return, you're open up to a whole new can of worms, right? The pull-in is very narrow, and it lets you sidestep that. Now, if the partner does that, the IRS has to accept the modification. But Another issue that everyone keeps talking about, it's pretty popular, is push out. Under 6226, the partnership can just push out all that liability, and then it's a partner problem. But here's the thing, though. Push outs, they have strict timing rules. You have to find the partners. You have to push it out within that time frame. And think about like a tiered partnership structure. The lower tier might find the partners, push it out, no problem. But if it has to keep going up through different tiers, it might get challenging, and it might be impossible. I also want to say that for large partnerships, like a master limited partnership, pushing out an adjustment related to debt mischaracterization just wouldn't even be an option. MLPs that have non-recourse debt generally have multiple layers of built-in gains, which could impact the allocation of debt under 704C. But MLPs can't identify which partners a 704C minimum gain relates to once the units trade in the marketplace. So you can't push out. How do the rules treat partnership interest sales? Let's say that you and I are partners in a partnership and you sell your partnership interest. Under Section 741, that's the sale of a capital asset. Except Section 751 says if your partnership interest is related, if that sale is related to hot assets and unrealized receivable, that would be ordinary income if you were still a partner in the partnership, right? You can't sell your interest now and get around that by paying all capital gain. That hot asset under 751 is going to be treated as ordinary income. Right now, it's unclear. Let's say that you mischaracterize the amount that you owe from your partnership sale. The partner is going to mischaracterize it. Is that a centralized partnership audit regime issue? No one knows. Or does the character matter? Some people have said, look, it seems like under the rules right now, if you have 751 hot asset, ordinary income from selling your interest, that would be included. But the capital portion under 741, not tied to hot assets, that might be out. Right now, we, we don't have answers on that.
Are there still questions about uh, partnership representatives? That's a good question because it keeps coming up. The partnership representative under the audit regime has a ton of power. Final rules came out on the partnership audit representative in August, but people are still pretty worried because now this is actually going to take effect and this partnership representative will have pretty much unfettered power. Under the old, it was Tax, Equity, and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 1982, TEFRA. That's how you would audit partnerships. They had a tax matters partner, and you would spend time litigating who that partner is, whether they had the authority. They made it really easy under this new audit regime. They said you name a partnership representative on the return. That person alone binds the partnership. People are pretty freaked out by that because that's a lot of power. So people have said, okay, if we're going to have to live with this, what do we put in place in our partnership agreement to limit the power? And the IRS said, you know, look, you can put in any contractual obligations you want, breach of contract duty, a fiduciary law. You can put whatever you want in your partnership agreement. That's your problem. You can sue that rep after, but we're only talking to that rep and they can buy the whole partnership. If you guys want to go to state court later, feel free, but that's not our problem. And so now talking to people, you know, some accounting firms are saying, who would want to be a partnership representative? It sounds like a huge headache. Everyone's going to be mad at you. You're going to be dragged to state court. It sounds like a nightmare, right? And others have said, you know what? It's a cottage industry. Some law firms are marketing. Look, call us first. We'll be your partnership representative. Put us on your return. If you get audited, call us and we'll take you to audit. We'll go up through the whole system. We'll go to court for you and everything. So it's a cash cow for some law firms, it sounds like, and others just want nothing to do with it. It's kind of a thankless job. Well, I guess we got a lot to watch during this filing season and and beyond as uh, as all these issues get litigated. I think you're right. And speaking of speaking of litigation, some people have pointed out like if you look at this last batch of final rules that came out in December 21st, the preamble is over 200 pages. It was really long, and people said, "Look, that's because they're trying to bulletproof these regulations because these could get challenged in court." The fact that this partnership representative has so much power, there aren't due process safeguards for those other partners. They don't have a voice. So you see this preamble, it's really long and it's the IRS covering their tracks and they're saying, look, if you're going to challenge us, here's our explanation as to why. So yeah, I think going forward and once this actually goes into place, it's going to be interesting. Partnership returns are due in a few months. You have to name your partnership representative and it's going to become an actual reality. Talking to practitioners, a ton of partnerships have not taken this seriously. When it comes time to file their return, two months if they file extension in you know six months, it's going to be very chaotic. All right. Well, we're definitely going to have you back to talk about all the litigation that we're looking forward to. Thanks, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Richard Joslin examines the TCJA's limits on business interest expense deductions and excess losses. And Jared Blanchard argues for new bonus depreciation regulations. In state tax notes, Lynn Gandhi considers whether it's time for a refreshed model for apportioning corporate income. And Joseph Andreas and Timothy Noonan discuss a surprising New York guidance regarding Wayfair. And in Tax Notes International, Alexandra Ball discusses the digitalization of VAT compliance and the shift toward real-time invoice submission, while Lori Hellkamp and Courtney Robinson examine the impact of Brexit and the end of NAFTA's derivative benefits test in U.S. tax treaties. You can read all that and a lot more in the February 11th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. 
And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.